7 and verse 6. So far we've already seen Paul has now left Caesarea and now he's headed to Italy. And there's a voyage and there's basically a lot of detail here we're going to be going over. But picking up in verse 6 in Acts 27, And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmon. And hardly passing it came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lacia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter, in the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice, and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after these arose again in a tempestuous wind called Euryclidon, and when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ships and fearing lest they should fall into quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. And you can imagine the treacherous nature of the vessel and what they were doing on this voyage, going all the way from the coast of Africa to Alexandria. And basically when we're reading these opening verses, it's actually bringing together all the stops that they're going to make, and along the way they have a real problem. They're on to Italy. It's a treacherous journey. Paul had appeared to, appealed to Caesar and to Rome. He will go. This is where he's going, and they must go by sea. The Lord had told him that. It doesn't say exactly how they're going to get there, but we see here Paul is actually going to be coming to a certain point where he's going to have a very interesting uh, part of the journey. And so they must go by sea. This is a great voyage. We're not sure how long it was after Paul had met with Agrippa and Bernice but we do know that it was long enough for them to get on a boat and have him transported to Rome, and actually it's more than one boat. So we see that Dr. Luke continues to write, he was a physician, a prodigious historian, and he was there to give an account of Paul's voyage to Rome. And as we read these verses, look at the incredible detail. He talks about the work of a mariner. He talks about the vessel itself. He shows that it's on the leeward side, and we're going to see by this video some visual about what's going on. And when this is all happening, basically the detail by Dr. Luke is so incredible that we even learn about what they did with the ship. We're going to see that. And so I think that's important to understand because there's so much incredible, actually, you could call it almost forensic detail. There's no doubt about Scripture, the authenticity of Scripture. 
and how there is artifacts, there are witnesses, there are events, the locations are still intact. And as we can see today, as we're going to watch this video a little bit later, we're going to see some of the actual standing buildings that were actually there in the days of Paul. So I find that fascinating, and I think that this is a very remarkable portion of Acts. Luke was not a professional mariner or, or even part of the Royal Navy, but the graphic descriptions that he gives here is incredible. And it, the preservation of these words is incredible because it reifies the authenticity of this account by giving details regarding how to gird up a ship and how ancient mariners would prepare for such a voice, voyage. They are going into the perfect storm. And what's fascinating about this, there is a massive spiritual side to this. A side that we're going to learn this morning, why it's so important to listen. Paul made it very clear to them that they shouldn't go this far on this voyage. We're right now in the time of year that this actually was happening. Actually, it was the end of October, going into November, and it's an extremely tempestuous time on the seas right there at the Great Sea. And so when this happens, Paul is going to Rome. They're not going to listen to him. They're going to listen to others, and it costs, almost costs them their lives. Traveling by ships was absolutely no comfortable. This was no comfortable like Norwegian ocean liner, as we're going to see. Heading, like heading to the Bahamas. These were rickety old ships that had been weathered. They'd been held together by dowels and rusty nails and rope. And then we're going to see how basically they were so afraid of the structure of the boat being compromised that they actually did what was called frapping or pulling cables around it to try to hold the boat together. What's incredible, we can learn from this, is if you look out on that picture out there about where the pilgrims came in on the speedwell, the whole center mast of that whole ship cracked down the middle and it could have pulled it apart. And the Lord gave them this big, massive metal screw. You can see it in that picture out there, which is the only second representation of that picture in the whole world. And those men there, you can see there's Elder, Elder uh, Edward Brewster, and there's Bradford is there, and they literally took by hand that screw and put it through the mast and held that boat together so that when it came in, they could at least get in without them all drowning. And all the stuff that happened on that boat on the way over, it's an incredible event that happened, just like this. And there was a lot of conversation back and forth, and Paul was telling them, this is not a good time to do this. We need to stop this boat in Fair Haven. We need to dock it right there. And they said, no, we need to go a little further before we seek refuge. That was a mistake. And so we see how what's incredible that the captain actually at this point will lose Paul as opposed to the other prisoners and will allow him to not be chained in the hull or down in the bottom of the ship. And he'll actually have... Uh, some type of correspondence with Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, and there are maybe a couple other Christians that were there with him. So I'm sure that they agreed with Paul, but at this point, the bottom line came down, basically, to the Royal Navy, the Imperial Commander, with him speaking to Julius Augustus. They're the ones that confer on this, and they're saying, don't listen to this Paul. We're going to keep going. Why? Why was it so important for them to keep going, and why were they so afraid? Does anybody remember? Yeah. And they wind up losing the cargo eventually. This is cargo for the imperial Roman, the, the whole Roman, the realm. 
All of the, basically, the higher-ups had expensive artifacts. They had food, they had grain, they had all kinds of, they were on these big cargo ships, and they were supposed to be transported, and they're saying, hey, we get there late, something happens. We're going to have our heads. So no matter what happens, we're going forward with this. Anyway, Paul, these men would have been, they, they would have watched over with great militants, and then we're going to see it at some point, basically, and that comes into the next lesson after this one. Basically, they start scratching their heads and saying, if we're going to be shipwrecked, and basically they're not that far off of shore, we need to kill all the prisoners. We need to kill every one of them, because if any of them get away, we're going to be responsible for that. And so there's a lot of real drama going on here. The men would be watched over with great militants and there, so that there would be not some kind of mutiny or a takeover. It would, be very, it would have been very vigilant with such weaponry, and that would have added an awful lot of weight on the boat because there would have been a lot of weaponry and artillery there on that boat also. So they board off the coast of Asia near Adramatayam is where they started, and then in verse 6 they pick up, and then there's another boat that they have in Alexandria, and this is the boat that they're on now, and it's basically uh, a, a basically a, a they call it a more of a coastal ship, and it's not that big. And this ship would not be built to hold together in very in, in deep waters with tempestuous seas. All of this starts peaceful and calm, and then later it starts coming apart. These waters that Paul will be sailing through—they're very interesting. From October to December, they're very tempestuous. There's fluctuations in wind patterns. The waves, it could be like in a matter of seconds, the miles per hour of the waves could increase easily, four miles per hour. Drastically and quickly on the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Sea, which is part of that, at the floor of the sea you had mud and sand containing fragments of shells, fossil, mollusks, and corals, and they're going right by what is called the graveyard of ships, where there's all kinds of what Scripture says here in King James. They call it quicksand, but what it really is is a sandbar, and they were scared to death that the waves would push them into the sandbar and just split the boat open. So they had to make a lot of decisions. One of the decisions is lightening the ship. But we see here that there was all kinds of, from a navigational point of view, there was a lot of trouble going into this voyage. And during the six winter months, there's what's called a Bora and a Sirocco alternate, with or without intervals, where there is only a few calm days and a lot of tempestuous days. And the tides of the Adriatic, which would, been, would have been intensely studied by them, follow a very complicated pattern sweeping into the region from the south and being linked with those of the Ionian Sea. And what that means basically is there are north, there are south, and there are west winds that all come together to form these great big storms during the winter. And they're brutal. And they still have them today. But Paul is linked with the prisoners just as our Lord is hung between two thieves and he's with them and he is trying to save them. Well, but what happens out on the sea once getting back a little bit, it, the tidal range is about three feet in contrast to the general Mediterranean tidal range of about 0.9 foot. The surface currents are chiefly influenced by the blowing winds 
with currents spurred by north winds reaching a speed of four miles per hour. And although it gets cold, the temperature in these months does not dip below 52 degrees or 11 degrees Celsius. So we can see here when they did go in and the, and the ship did wreck, they didn't freeze to death. Remember what happened with Titanic? Remember how, how cold the waters were? Anyone? It's like 33 degrees? And they were only good for so long, and a lot of people died of hypothermia. It was horrible. And so here, basically, in this, in this Mediterranean area, where it's very tropical, a lot of it, it would remain warm enough that they, would, they, they could go in. But the Lord had told Paul something fascinating. And this is where the spiritual part of it comes in, and I think we need to look at that very closely. When Paul tells them not to take the voyage, that is the Lord telling Paul to tell them, it's time to stop and we need to weather this winter and see how far we can, we can get by just you know, taking the ship, pulling it in, getting off and just sitting back and waiting until we know that the, that, that the waters are calm. They wouldn't listen. But then later on, he tells them something else. No matter what happens, the Lord tells Paul, I have given all the prisoners into your hand and not one of them would lose their lives. And not one of them did lose their lives. But there was a disconnect here. A real disconnect. And you see that at this juncture, Paul had some friends with him. Dr. Luke, uh, he is taking exquisite record of this. And we see now that we're on the second coastal vessel, the first one out of Africa, or Adram, Adramatium, and then another sailing directly to Italy in Alexandria near Lycia and Pamphylia of the southern coast of Asia. We'll see some of that on the map coming up. Paul was like Joseph among many prisoners. He was valued from a Jehovah above and treated with great respect from the centurions. Remember how Joseph, even though that he was put in jail after the event at Potiphar, where he had done nothing wrong, but Potiphar's wife came after him, and she had all this pride, and she wanted nothing to do with the fact that Joseph turned on her. So she goes to her husband, and she basically tells him that Joseph came after her, and Potiphar has him put in prison. All the way down the line, through the whole story of Joseph, the Lord protected him. But he was always revered. He was never hurt. He was never killed. He wasn't executed. But all along, starting in Potiphar's house, he was elevated in Potiphar's house for a time. And then the wicked wife of Potiphar has him turned in. Then he goes to jail. Then he's elevated in jail, and he becomes the leading prisoner taking care of all the affairs in the jail. Then if that's not enough, then you find out later on he becomes second in command of all of Egypt because he's the head accountant, and he's given the power, and the king has to depend on him because he's the one rationing the food. This is what happened to Paul. Paul's elevated in this situation, and because of the faithfulness and the love of Jesus Christ, every soul on that ship was saved, as we'll see. Not one soul was lost, even in the middle of tempestuous winds, horrible shipwreck, and even their disobedience. You see what a long-suffering God that we have. And you know, if you read commentaries, I, I mean, I could really turn this into many, many weeks of doctrinal study, because one of the real issues here is justification by faith where having faith in the Lord look what that does and a metaphor or basically symbolism that's here is look at all the tempestuous waters and the waves and the oceans in our lives life is like this tempestuous ocean 
It's a lot of trials. Or can we weather them? Can we have faith in the Lord that He will bring us through them no matter what happens? Can, he, can we do that? And we can. And that's really, if you read commentaries from Henry and Calvin and you go into Dr. Sproul, all of them talk about how important it is that these areas in our lives that are tempestuous, if we just trust the Lord, He'll get us through them. And I believe that's why this story has been preserved. One of the many, many, many reasons. Lisey. Yes. Right. 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 Amen. And, and and Jonah is actually later on in the lesson here. He's incorporated. That's that's great because. He was reaching out. Jonah was doing something that he did not innately want to do. And he was literally fighting God. He did not want to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He wanted it to the Jews only. And even those men on the ship were Gentiles. And when he went into Nineveh, they were Gentiles. And that was a, that was a real window and a sign of what the Lord would do with Gentiles. And as most of us here pretty much are all Gentiles... We can thank the Lord for that. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's going to reach the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans. He's going to bring the gospel to them. He's not trying to protect himself at all. He's saying, hey, it's far better to be with the Lord. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to take my last breath until the Lord allows it. He says that tick mark on my grave marker, if there is such a thing back there, that little tick mark that says so many years to this one, that will not be filled in until the Lord fulfills what he's going to do with me. And he's told me I'm going to Rome. And it wouldn't have mattered if he had to ride inside of the belly of a great fish with Jonah. He was getting to Rome. <laughs> and so it's amazing how this plays out. I think that's, that's fascinating. Uh, here we see that now they're on the way. There's two coastal vessels there's the first one from Africa, on the coast of Africa, from Adramatium, and then the next one, Alexandria, near Lycia and Pamphylia, some of the Greek islands. And we see how Paul was elevated, just like Joseph was. You always remember that this application from these circumstances, it, it gives us a lesson about this great voyage, and the danger that Paul will face, and the fact that he will basically be partially swimming to Rome. And Paul would depend on no one else but the Lord. And that's it. And Psalm 106.46 says, He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. And that's a, that's a very great verse because Paul would be, he would be pitied by all of them because later they would find out how much he cares about them. And they would take care of him. He was not going to be turned away or cast into the sea like Jonah could have been, like Jonah was. They had gone forward by direct sailing. They left Cyprus. 
and the wind here did not favor them at all. There was a side wind that we read, and this is indicative of the directive Paul gives here in a few verses. He says, don't go. Here's Paul's advice. The Alexandrian ship now is passing through Crete near many Greek islands. Already the winds were stiff, but they were not deadly yet. They went through a place called Fair Haven, which was to be a place of rest, but they did not fasten the ropes there because they said, we need to go another 40 miles past Fair Haven and try to get to Clauda. The problem was that's where those sandbars were. And so they said, we're not listening to him. He said, you need to stop at Fair Haven now. But he, they said, no. And we see here, and Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, and not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul, but they would not be advised. This brings up a really very important thing. I wanted to get to this before we get to this. Listening. That is such a problem today. People listening. And Paul gave them the future. He had prophecy. They had heard what he had said back with Agrippa and Berenice when he told them of God. They told them, he told them about the prophecy of the prophets in the Old Testament and how the Lord directed them. And here he's giving them a prophecy. And they wouldn't listen. And I think that brings up a real, I think this is the, the hinge point or the real spiritual application here is about listening. The deckmates, the Roman magistrates, would not listen. Could someone read Proverbs 19, 20, and 21? And then I have a few quotes here about listening we're going to go, we're going to look at. Proverbs 19, 20, That's a good verse. They're all good verses in Proverbs. The counsel of the Lord shall stand. And so Paul is bringing the counsel of the Lord and says, wait, just be, just be patient. We'll get to Rome, but let's be patient. Here's some quotes about listening. I think that these are a good way to teach us in the past that we should be. And it's from some very interesting people. It takes a great man to be a good listener. Calvin Coolidge. The worst of all listeners is the man who does nothing but listens. Charles Dickens. And the thought here is it's the man that listens but takes no action. Doesn't do anything about it. Just kind of stays basically dormant, hears and listens, but does not put it into effect. That's, I think that's a very good quote. Here's another one. Let's see if I can find that. Let's see. You can't fake listening. It shows. Guess who said that? One of the visitors out at one of our Bible Presbyterian church out in Los Angeles, California, Raquel Welch, she had visited that church out there. This was a quote that she made, and actually, I spoke to the pastor that knows her, and he said she got saved before she died last year. He said unequivocally she was saved and she believed in the Lord. You can't fake listening, it shows. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, It is the providence of knowledge to speak, and it is the privilege of wisdom to listen. He, he was an American Renaissance poet. He, he wrote Old Ironsides and many other good pieces. What about some of the quotes from King Solomon in the book of Proverbs that I think I, that we should always look at? We're having, a, 
wonderful study on Wednesday evening prayer meeting in the book of Proverbs right now. Why don't we go around the room and read them some? Jacob, Proverbs 4.10. Matthew, could you read Proverbs 5.7? How about uh, Greg, uh, Proverbs 8.6? And Mary Ann, could you read Proverbs 8.33? Just do one after the other, kind of like a bullet form here. Proverbs 4.10. Great reason to listen. The years of thy life shall be many. Who has Proverbs 5 7? Do not go away from it. Proverbs 8 6. Another good reason to listen. Proverbs 8 33. Yes, Marion, thank you. Proverbs 8.33. Amen. It's like Proverbs 23.23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom, instruction, and understanding. I think we have a real problem with that today is people listening and hearing, hearing the truth. The truth is greatly overrated. That's what the law. That's what, that's what the legal profession teaches. One of their first, one of their one of their first obje- objectives. The truth is overrated. But here's one thing you can never do: you can't outrun the truth. It's there, and so the truth was there. Paul had given it. So what's happening here? There's only one walking by faith here, and not by sight. It's Paul. Perhaps we could say Doctor Luke and also Aristarchus. He's already warned them. And what else could they expect? They thought Paul to be impertinent or cheeky in the field of boating. They were thinking, he's not a mariner. He has nothing to do with vessels. He doesn't know how to shore up or do frapping or do anything that's going to be some kind of help to us. Forget God. Forget Paul. He's a prisoner. Let's all talk back and forth. The Roman Roman Imperial Navy back and forth with Julius Augustus, who he too is not a mariner. And they're saying, forget. Get what Paul says, and they don't listen. Building this up, because this is quite an accident that happens here. Here's another thing to consider, though, about Paul. Paul had been around. They're sailing by Crete. Is there any any evidence in the New Testament at all that Paul had any understanding of Crete? He had already been there. Paul knew the waters. He knew the people. When you get into churches and you're talking about the Bible, isn't it amazing how intimate information you get about other people? You will. You will counsel them and you will hear things. Paul knew the people. He knew the area. And if you go all the way to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we read, For this cause left I thee in Crete, he's speaking to Titus, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. He said, I appointed them. I'd been to Crete. So he knows a little bit about the area. And he's also telling them, not just from a spiritual and a biblical standpoint, he's telling them he's actually been there also. So look what happens here. Look at the details so far. We see the locations, the weather type of the ship, and the work they did on the ship to keep alive. What happens, in a we- what happens is this weather pattern, and we see it in verse 14. What's, what's the name of the weather pattern? Anybody remember? In verse 14, you can look it up. Just read it. 
Yeah, Euryclidon. Thank you. It has incredible meaning. Euryclidon. Listen to what it means. If you break it down. And look at the details so far. You see the locations, the weather, the type of ship. And we see the weather pattern is called Euryclidon or Euroquilon is what another translation from the Greek. The word, the word Euros meaning east wind and the Latin word Aquilo means north wind. It is a strong, treacherous, perilous windstorm greatly feared by those who set sail on the Mediterranean, but they had a greater fear of not getting the merchandise to Rome. They are so stupid that they go forward and they won't stop. They will not tie that ship up and wait for this tempestuous weather to go over. And what happens? We will see. And look at the details so far. You know, let us keep in clear focus that it was God that commanded these winds and seas for his perfect glory. There was a reason why the Lord did this, just like in the days of Jonah, as Lisi had mentioned earlier. There was a reason. Paul was in the grip of danger as Jonah, but Paul was not obstinate to the mission that Jonah was. Paul knew that if God be for you, who can be against you? These are stormy winds being brought out of God's treasuries. Psalm 135, 7 says, He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the winds out of his treasuries. Psalm 148, 8, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy winds, fulfilling his word. So y'all ready to go to the video? You want to see a little bit about this? Let's see what this, let, let's see what we can uh, find out here. Somebody can get the lights, please. It, you get a little bit of a visual. Well, I think this fellow did a great job. Where do you see the next one? So somebody can get the lights. We'll get back to the, to the study here. That was the actual sea that they were on, and he had a map there, and it showed some of the areas. But when you see him going in from Crete towards the coastal, that's called the leeward side. And basically, the objective was to keep those coastal ships close to land because of how tempestuous it was and how it could just break the ship apart and the shipwreck would be horrible. But it's incredible here. All souls should have been lost on this shipwreck. And so basically... At this point, we've only got a couple more minutes left. We've got another really good vi video about Malta or when, Malta when they get to that island next week. And it shows a little more of the ship and stuff, and we'll, we'll see that then. But what happened? At this point, a young man there said that Paul told them it would be a disastrous uh, endeavor to try to take that ship and to keep going forward. What happens? And look at the detail here that's in Scripture. Let's go through it in verses 17 to 20. Here's the preparation of the vessel. You saw what the vessel looked like. And if you look at different, if you look at different pictures, you can go back, you can go online and punch in, look, Paul's voyage to Rome um, and put something like the ship that he was on or something, and it'll show you all these pictures. And all the pictures basically look like that ship that we just saw in the video. That's what it looked like. And did you see all the people that were on there? Would you have wanted to have been on that ship? I mean, you're like standing shoulder to shoulder you're on a ship and it's going back and forth just like the speedwell, excuse me, just like the speedwell out there in that picture out there in the foyer. It was the same thing. There were so many people on it. One, one man actually fell overboard, had a rope tied around him, and they had to pull him up, and he was actually, he lived. He had fallen off of the ship. That was what it was like for the cruise, the, the, the wonderful cruise liners or the pilgrims coming over from England and all. You see how tempestuous it was. Well, what happened? The preparation of the vessel, and you see Dr. Luke gives incredible detail here. They used means that were conducive in their time 
but the art of navigation was far short of per perfection as opposed to the modern advances we have today. Here's the first step that they took in verse 17. They undergirded the ship. They bound it under bottom with strong cables to keep it from bulging out and breaking apart. This is a procedure known frapping and known as frapping. The cables were wrapped around the hull and winched tightly to help the ship endure the battering and the winds and the waves. They were approaching the area around Crete known as Sirtis Sands. This was a region of sandbars and shoals way off the coast of Africa, which to this day is a graveyard of ships. They were afraid of this. And I love how the King James Version calls it the quicksands. They're the sandbars. And what they would have to do is try to do everything they can to avoid these sandbars at such a speed. Because this boat hits one of them, it's just going to break apart. And so basically we see there's an incredible description by Dr. Luke. So the first thing they did was they undergirded the ship. The second thing they did was they straked sail. What does that mean? What did they do with the sail? Yes. Charlie. Took them down. There's an old saying that goes, that there's an old saying from the, I was reading about what some of the mariners would say is, Sometimes it's good to let the ship just go by itself. When you're facing death, rend yourself of all of the forces against it and just let it go. And at that point, you are, <laughs> if you have any knowledge of God whatsoever, you're going to put your trust in and then. And Paul was trying to teach him that. They, so they strike sail. They struck sail. Sometimes a ship will live at sea when lowering the sail and letting it be tossed and turned to make natural movement. This was their only hope. First, the strike sail, they strike it and they pull it down. Remember, these boats had no coal, steam, or combustible engines to propel the vessel in this era. When the sailors cannot make sure it is in the best interest to keep it as far away as possible and to not be thrown uncontrollably into rocks and sandbars. So what they do, they undergirded the ship, pulled it together, tried to hold it together, dropped the sail, and then this is where it gets real interesting. What's the next thing they do? It says in verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. There goes all the goods that they were trying to protect. They wanted to please the Royal Imperial Navy and all of the artifacts of those that were wealthy, and they had to start throwing them over. It's an amazing thing how one will shipwreck their, their, their items in order to save their life. But what's sad about this, about what we were talking about listening early, earlier, they would shipwreck their faith in order to, to protect their goods. And that's what they did. Lisey. Right. Right. No, you can't. And their, their, faith, their faith in what Paul was telling them was very weak. Then they lightened the ship of its cargo, throwing all unnecessary gear and cargo overboard would lighten the ship, enabling it to rise more above the waves, hopefully keeping water from overtaking the ship and enabling to ride more freely amongst the waves. They even threw the valuable merchandise overboard, the grain, the merchandise for Rome, and other expensive items. This is the very same thing that happened with Jonah. Lisey, why don't you, you were talking about Jonah. That was great. Jonah 1.5. Look what they did. There they were trying to spare their souls on the boat. So look, look what happens. But these came to be 
Is that Jonah 1 5? That's a good one. We'll hit that one. One, one day we'll hit that one. That's right next to Hezekiah, right? <laughs> See that? He was fast asleep, and there they are. He's trying to get away from God, and they're, while he's sleeping, they're throwing away all the important merchandise into to the sea to try to save their ship. And this is what they're doing. The next thing they do is they lighten the cargo, and they lighten the weaponry, and the artillery. We see in verse 19, And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They even had to throw out the tools that they needed to keep the ship together. Anything they used, the anchors, they threw the anchors. We're going to see next week an actual picture of one of the anchors. They found an anchor in the sea over there. You can actually see one, what the anchor looked like. And so basically, they're, they're just rending it of everything. And what's left is a lot of people. The, what, one of the real problems is they had overloaded that ship with too many people. It, was, it, was, it must have been completely packed. Well, here's the despair, and this is where we'll end this morning in verse 20. The despair, all hope should be taken away. Not like it was with the three disciples, with Jesus, with the great tempest. Jesus said, peace be still, and the waves and the sea were perfectly calm. Well, that didn't quite happen in this situation. See, back when Jesus was, was sleeping in the back of the boat, that ship held together. But this one's going to go the next step, and the ship's going to explode apart. But the Lord tells Paul, I've given them into your hands. Not one of you are going to lose your life. Not by sharks, not by great fish, not by rocks, not by coral, not by drowning, and not by any cold weather or anything. You're all going to be spared. And did it happen? Well, we'll see that it obviously did. Well, the calm before the storm is basically Paul will tell them, he will tell them about the Lord. And there's some verses that show what it was like here. In Psalm 107, 27, actually we've sung this psalm many times. It said, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. And that's talking about a ship being tossed back and forth. But there is Jesus, who has worked through the Apostle Paul. And this is what we can hope for, even in the worst of situations. Look at these verses, and we'll end with these verses. Psalm 107, verses 28 to 31. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet, so he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. <laughs> and we're learning here. He's the one that calms the waters in our lives. He's the one that calms the seas, and he's the one that's going to be taking Paul, and he's going to get to Rome. So let's finish there this morning. Let's finish with prayer. Like this. Uh, Brother Dave, could you close us this morning? Thank you.